Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. On Commons People this week, an own goal for the government. You know, what families are going through now, I once had to go through that. Um, same system. An economy in suspended animation. There's no way I can protect every single job and every single business through this. And a Tory party fraying at the seams. And, and MPs, of course, are considered by the number 10 policy unit as annoying hobbits in the Shire who are legal necessities and uh, just to do what we're told to do. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Commons People. I'm Arj Singh and joining me this week is Paul War. Hi Arj. Hey Paul, Rachel Wearmouth is here. Hello. Hi Rachel and we're joined by the Conservative MP and Commons Education Committee Chair Rob Halfon. Hello, nice welcome. to be here. Welcome back. Thank you. Uh, well the government continues to face criticism over its failure to get schools back up and running despite lifting other lockdown restrictions but Boris Johnson and the Tories are instead pointing the finger at Labour councils, teaching unions and Keir Starmer himself. Meanwhile, the Prime Minister was forced into yet another U-turn by England striker Marcus Rashford, who successfully campaigned for free school meal vouchers to be extended into the summer holidays. Let's hear Johnson and Starmer clashing over schools at PMQs. We intend to make sure that we minimise the impact of coronavirus on the poorest kids uh, in this country. And one of the best ways in which we could do that, by the way, Mr Speaker, would be to encourage all kids uh, who can go back to school to go back to school now because, because their schools are safe. Last week I asked him whether he would say publicly that schools were safe uh, to go back to. He hummed and he hawed. Now is his time to say it clearly. Schools are safe to go back to. Mr Speaker, your witness. <laughs> Mr Speaker, the Prime Minister, the Prime Minister obviously hasn't got the first idea what the Social Mobility Report actually said last week, a government body, um, uh, uh, and he talks to me about consistency and U-turns. The government's had three U-turns in the last month. First we had immigration health charges, then we had MPs voting, and then we had free school meals. The only question now is whether U-turns at the dispatch box um, before or after. Three U-turns. He argues about one brief one week and one the next. He's an expert in that. Uh, Paul, whose fault is it that schools aren't going back? Well, ultimately, the, the real fault lies in this scientific and medical advice. The real reason, as opposed to fault, is that um, advice says you've got to cap the number of pupils at 15 uh, for primary and for secondary. And given that um, secondary schools and primary schools don't have both enough space or enough teachers to do that, then obviously you're not going to get everybody back at the same time. And that's really, I think, the, the, the elephant in the room in this whole debate. It's not about two metres distancing or one metre. It's about um, whether or not actually those class sizes can go to 30, for example. If they could go to 30, then every single class could go back. But what's going to change that perception um, is going to be um, scientifically and medically led, I guess. And 
I think there's there's a growing body of opinion amongst some of the scientists that actually because of the very, very small risk to children, particularly young children uh, posed by this uh, a virus, that actually they're going to have to tear up the rules and, and have an age specific approach to the virus, which we've not really had before. We, we've treated everyone in exactly the same way with two metres, whether you're young or old. Um, and uh, what I thought was really interesting this week was when Nicola Sturgeon, for the first time, suggested that actually... Um, because she's coming under real pressure from parents there. The first time she suggested that they may well have to have um, uh, an end to any kind of social distancing in Scottish schools. And she was reacting to some advice by one of the, uh, the, the Scotland, Scotland's foremost academics um, uh, at Edinburgh University, who's actually been advising her throughout all this, who said, tweeted this week, look, we may well be able to get there by the time the schools come back in the autumn well, why don't we just simply abandon social distancing because and let's be honest that's what this all surrounds uh, centers on but well, rob what do you make of that do we need to abandon this 15 class size limit um well i i, I don't like always disagreeing with uh, uh the esteemed political editor of the post <laughs> i don't think it is just down to social distancing i mean when the uh, schools had a very modest opening in early years in terms of primary schools and year one and year six. This was utterly opposed by some sections of the trade unions and some sections of the Labour Party. And there has been a movement for many weeks now not to open the schools. In fact, I have been in favour of schools opening all the time. And I got enormous amounts of flack in the early days saying that uh, what I was doing was terrible. It was a risk to children and and to staff. And we know from the World Health Organization, we know from 22 other EU countries, and we know from the uh, chief medical officer that it is as safe as it can be to send our children back to school. And when we consider these issues, you have to weigh up the risk of coronavirus. Absolutely. I understand that, but you all, which is minimal, but you also have to weigh up the huge risk to the educate a potential epidemic of educational poverty for our uh, children, a safeguarding crisis, mental health issues, ever increasing mental health issues of literally millions of children, as now academic studies have shown, two million uh, plus children not doing any homework at all, uh, four odd million children not having hardly any contact with teachers, mainly from disadvantaged backgrounds. You're damaging the life chances of these kids um, if we don't get them back to school. And some schools have managed to do the social distancing by having staggered classes a few hours in the morning for one class a few hours um, in the afternoon. Of course, it would make it easier if social distancing rules were changed. But the unions had five unbelievable conditions uh, that they set out saying uh, uh, what before schools could go back. And no other workplace has those conditions. And I asked them in my committee yesterday uh, on uh, Wednesday this week, um, why was there not also a further condition looking at the risks to children uh, in lockdown and staying at home? And I have a general view. I, my fav, One of my heroes is Nicholas Winton, who brought the kindergarten children from uh, Germany to England. And there is a suitcase, sculpt, beautiful sculpture of his in um, Liverpool Street Station. But he said, if it's not impossible, there must be a way to do it. And where the government should have, uh, what the government should have done at the beginning was to have a massive national, bold national plan of getting our kids back into school. They should, just like the Nightingale hospitals, they should have set up an Alan Turing uh, schools across the uh, country, to, uh, you know, big spaces to get our kids learning. They should have set up a national army of 
educational volunteers of Ofsted inspectors are not deployed at the moment for the most part, retired teachers, graduates, working with schools, working with social workers, working with local councils to help those left behind kids um, uh, to get them learning again and to get them back to school. And if there had been the right will and vision and uh, at the beginning and not the opposition from some sections of the unions, but not all, I think we would have been in a much better place. Yeah, Rachel, why isn't Keir Starmer leading the way on this? He's kind of following Labour councils and and teaching unions. Who, by the way, sorry to interrupt, he does send his kids to school at the moment and has done during the uh, whole crises. Well, I guess it's probably worth pointing out that sort of the Labour leader can't exactly tell Labour councils what to do. You know, they have their own um, mandate. They have their own decision-making processes. Um, I I think... I think it's more around the fact that the, the the Labour Party seems to think that they should never interrupt their enemy when they're making a mistake. And they think that Boris Johnson's government should have to sort all of this out using their 80 seat majority. You know, the Labour Party keeps continually referring to the 80 seat majority, but um, the, the public increasingly see Keir Starmer as a candidate for, for prime minister. So rather than just say, um, I'm supportive of, of schools reopening, he should be perhaps putting forward ideas and take, taking more of a lead, yeah. Because it, you have to present yourself as an alternative government, which it doesn't seem to be doing that at the moment. He seems to be stepping back and waiting to see what happens before he takes a lead, as you say. I think I think the interesting subtext here as well is that Rebecca Long-Bailey is the Shadow Education Secretary. And, you know, a lot of people uh, uh, at various levels in the party saying, look, this is just expose. Uh, the fact that you've got someone who's defeated in the leadership contest, had to be given a job, and she's been given a job actually that that maybe her views don't necessarily align with Keir Starmer's on this and other parts of the Labour Party. Um, there are some people in the Shadow Cabinet who think actually she should have been much more cooperative, much more proactive about Labour's own back-to-school plan, and that she's in hock to the unions more than anybody. Uh, and there's certainly that internal tension within Labour, which I think the Prime Minister was very keen to sort of expose this week in PMQs. Could I just add, um, I actually think that Keir Starmer, on the whole, is is a pretty strong leader of the Labour Party. And I'm glad for that because he's giving us a hard time, which stops us being complacent. I think he's modernising the Labour Party by stealth and, and changing it from the Corbyn days. But I think this is a big test. And if you compare his kind of sitting on the fence on this uh, with what David Blunkett and Alan Johnson, two hugely respected Labour figures who've been very clear in criticising the union, saying kids have got to get back to school come what may. I think this was a very big test. And because he sat on the fence, I think he failed it. And it shows that the decarbonisation of Labour has got a long way to go. Yeah, Rob, what what about the government actions on this? Because... They seem to have acted very quickly, or maybe not quickly enough, some would say, on the health side, but they ramped up testing very quickly once they realised that was a problem. They kind of acted very quickly on that, and they've acted very quickly on the economy um, in terms of the furlough scheme and and things like that. But they don't seem to have acted or given the same priority to education. Would would you agree with that? I think that um, I would have some sympathy. I think that's a fair question. I think that uh, all the focus has been on health and the economy. Um, in some ways, understandably, because we're in a national crisis because of the pandemic. Uh, But education is part of that triangle. I mean, I'm passionate about education. I would say that my first ever speech in the House of Commons was about apprenticeships, a maiden speech. But 
Boris Johnson needs to give a speech on education and skills and setting out a long term plan, not just to deal with the coronavirus, but uh, uh, the aftermath of it. Um, as far as I'm aware, he hasn't done a speech on education. He's the prime minister and uh, he's got to lead this and uh, then filter anything the prime minister, anything any prime minister says has a, a huge effect and galvanises Whitehall. And if I was Boris, um, I would make education the number one priority because I think that it is going to be the most important thing. We're destroying the chances of life chances of uh, you know, millions of children, potentially. We've got a, a skills crisis with apprentices being laid off or and being made redundant. Um, we've got some big problems to deal with, and uh, he needs to kind of signpost where we should be. Rob, we're being told that actually that what might be in Gavin Williamson's catch-up plan tomorrow is this idea that schools would open early and stay open a bit later, and that kids would come in before school and after school and have some catch-up classes but it's not clear who would do those catch-up classes now it might be this army of volunteers as you suggest but but given they'll be on school premises what if for example the union say we're not having our people our teachers doing that what would your response well, be to that there are lots of these things going on at the moment i mean not i'm not i'm talking about when coronavirus isn't around um there are these incredible organizations like action tutoring the tutor trust and others that actually work with schools. Some of them are charities, some of them are private companies, but with uh, a social conscience. And they are providing this catch-up service and they're hired by the schools to help the kids. And the results are enormous. I mean, uh, you know, I've been told of shown data where three hours, less than three hours a week for 12 weeks can advance someone's um, learning by five months. I mean, that's massive. But by the way, it isn't just about educational attainment. That's incredibly important. It's also about pastoral care and well-being, because as the letter from the 1600 paediatricians and the letter in the Sunday Times from over 100 mental health professionals, there are going to be kids that come out of this with severe mental health and well-being issues and are going to need help. So I hope that these programmes include funding for the catch-up premium includes funding for charities like Places to Be that does enormous work in schools, a brilliant organisation in helping kids with mental health and wellbeing issues. How long do you think the catch-up programme will need to last? Do you think it'll be one year, two years, longer? I think it's something that should go on all the time. I think there should be a catch-up premium, which is separate for the pupil premium, because the pupil premium is not ring-fenced. I'd like to see a national programme which just focuses on left-behind pupils. My education committee, we're looking at left-behind pupils, and without the coronavirus, there is massive difference in attainment between disadvantaged people and pupils and their better-off peers, masses. And uh, we're, doing, we're, we're doing a series of left-behind studies in our committee, and the first one is white working-class boys and girls who actually underperform um, than uh, many other uh, groups, uh, many other cohorts. So... Um, this should be something that is long term, but it's got to be ring fence. There's got to be specialised money that is just focused on disadvantaged pupils for mental health, well-being and extra tuition, education tuition. Um, Rob, just wanted to quickly ask you about free school meals as well, which is something that you were campaigning for. But um, Marcus Rashford put kind of rocket boosters underneath and and got the, the U-turn out of the prime minister. Do, do you wish the PM had, had kind of listened to you? first before being embarrassed into it well um we'd written a number of letters i'd written a number of letters public letters to ministers about it and had spoken to them 
um, directly, but um, actually the person who really lit the fuse was Marcus Rashford. And he wasn't like any other celebrities. I normally can't stand these celebrities who do this because they're usually flying from Los Angeles or first class on a gas guzzling jet and telling us to protect the environment. And I just can't, I genuinely don't like those kind of people. But he was different. He'd lived and breathed food hunger. Um, he raised money for uh, food charities. He was an icon. Everyone knew who he was. Um, in my constituency, um, everyone knew who he was. And the moment he started talking about it, I had people calling, uh, writing to me. And it wasn't just left-wing trolls. These are just good people. And I always have a rule when it's good people, you know that there's got to be a change. And this is why I think they realised they got it wrong. But the problem is, of course, it just we just allowed this to happen we, uh, for weeks. Uh, he then intervened and then there was a, a change of policy. I don't know why. And then this will come again in the next holidays. There'll be this issue. What we should have is a serious uh, food plan for families. So we have to come up with a programme that this isn't a problem for them without having a big battle um, at every time uh, this comes up with the Treasury. Do you, do you th- and it kind of strikes me that this is kind of could be a really toxic issue that returns again and again and again, you know, that kids may be hungry, that food banks exist. And it occurs to me that the Prime Minister never promised to completely eradicate food banks before the election. Do you think that's something he should just do to just put an end no. to this? To be fair to the government, I've been quite honest, I think, with you, where I think government have gone wrong. There are food banks in every country. Germany and France, I think, have more food banks per head than us, even though they're very prosperous countries. The food banks were started during Gordon Brown's uh, premiership. So I can't, uh, I hope that they would never be needed, but I, I suspect that they will be here for a while yet. But as I say, I think the way to deal with this problem is work out a sum of, work out the sum of money that is needed to deal with food hunger uh, um, and uh, helping just uh, struggling families and having a proper food program that so we don't go, whether it's vouchers or another scheme, I'm completely open-minded about it, but we don't have to go through this problem of battling for funds every time, especially during a, a major, major pandemic. Yeah, and of course, it's not that expensive, is it, if you were to, say, extend this free school meals voucher scheme forever? Well, interesting thing, I was just saying to the government, why don't you consolidate lots of the existing schemes in just into the food voucher, which have come close to the 120 million, not completely, but uh, close to it. And what they've now done is agreed to the 120 million plus 64 million pound hardship fund to local councils, plus the existing food programmes that exist. So actually, there is a very genuine, uh, some very genuine efforts out there and a significant amount of money. But as always with the problem with the Conservative Party is there are a whole load of clothes pegs without a washing line, no narrative, no link uh, to bring them all together. And, uh, uh, you know, even the letter that went out to MPs explaining what the government do was just like a, uh, a machine gun of statistics this is we're spending x program with the dwp x program, and there was no narrative or or you know as i say or kind of washing line linking all these clothes back together making it easier to explain to our constituents well we, we have fascinating stuff but we should move on um as the immediate health threat of coronavirus begins to subside concerns about the economic impact of lockdown are coming to the fore Just now, the Bank of England has pumped an extra £100 billion into the economy and figures this week suggested 600,000 people lost their jobs in the first two months of lockdown. 
But there are fears that the economy is simply in a state of suspended animation and that once the furlough scheme is lifted, millions could be left jobless. Chancellor Rishi Sunak is growing increasingly nervous and is becoming more open in his calls to ease the lockdown further. Let's hear him. I've always been very clear, despite the unprecedented action that we've just been discussing, there's no way I can protect every single job and every single business through this. There is going to be hardship ahead. But I think as we think about the next stages of our economic response and the plan that we're putting in place, we took the action we did in the short term. I think the next stages of that plan are to safely reopen our economy. Uh, Paul, is, is Rishi Sunak right? Do we need to go a bit further and faster in lifting the lockdown now? Well, I think that... Um... It all depends, really, ultimately, on how prepared the country is for a new outbreak. And until you get a proper test and trace system in place, it's it's not just a health risk. It's a real political risk for the prime minister. Now, I know he's coming under huge pressure, understandable pressure, as Rob was saying, uh, on on education, the government has really, really not taken into account this sort of third leg of the equation. But on the economy, um, uh, there's lots and lots of Tory MPs who think that actually he's got to go very, very fast. Now, I I, I, I don't have a view either way, apart from to, just to say that if, if there is a credible test and trace system in place, then why not just lift the entire social distancing? Why have one metre? Why, why not go to zero? Why not get everything up and running really quickly? Because if it surely, if if you're going to have depressed the number of cases and the number of deaths right down, then why not just go for it? Um, but that would rely entirely on having a really fast, really smart, extensive test and trace system to counter any outbreaks. Um, and I think as I talked about the political risk for the PM. I, I mentioned last night this little statistic that everyone seemed to miss last week. I think it was because it was on a Saturday that actually there was a new data set put out by the government which showed that for every single constituency in the country, how many people were on furlough. And the average for every single, well, the minimum for every single 650 constituencies was 10,000 people. 10,000 people are on furlough in Rob's constituency as a minimum and in every other. Some it's even higher. Um, And given that that's much greater than most MPs' majorities, certainly when you take into account the number of people in their family, and given that um, businesses have said this week, look, Uh, when furlough ends, 50% of our staff are going to almost certainly going to be laid off, then you're looking at a huge potential problem of unemployment. And that's why there is this time pressure, I think, on the Prime Minister to get things going as quickly as possible. Um, So it's a real health risk, but it's a real political risk not to go for something really bold. Yeah, Rob, Rob, what do you make of that? Does the PM need to do something bold? are Are you worried about what happens when furlough lifts? Um, well, I'm worried about it now because um, the experience of, if I, you don't mind me mentioning my constituency again, but what has been this really distressing to see is even with the furlough scheme, we've had loads of people laid off, um, even with the furlough scheme. And I've been complaining to companies all the time, why are you making people redundant when there is a furlough scheme? And so I, I worry hugely about what is going to happen. I actually think that when we come out of this, we're going to need a tax stimulus package for businesses because i genuinely believe if you cut taxes particularly for small businesses you stimulate growth they can have more money to employ people they're likely to less lay less people off and they can invest in machinery and capital and i think that you have i also think that we have to have a tax uh, cutting uh, policy for people on lower incomes 
um, so that they have more money uh, in their in their pockets. And that means we're going to have to borrow um, because there isn't going to be much money about. But I actually this is where I am quite traditionally conservative. I do actually believe that um, when you do ta- cut taxes for business and cut taxes for ordinary folk, you do get more money into uh, the Treasury. And uh, what I think that the government then need to do is the money that is coming in from businesses, the tax revenues, and um, if they keep tax, nor- they don't cut taxes, obviously, for the well-off individuals, but that money that comes in, they put in a, a, in a special redistribution fund um, put it up on a website so they see that money coming in the public can see that money coming in and they say this is how we're going to redistribute that money uh, around the country uh, so that's what they should do on the on the tax side to kind of stimulate business um, and when I say to redistribute around the country we distribute to disadvantaged areas around the country in terms of we're going to have to retrain a lot of people there's um, there's three billion announced already for skills I've called for a what's called an apprentice guarantee Prime Minister amazingly mentioned that uh, a couple of weeks ago, and I was over the moon when I heard him use those two words. I, w- I think that what we need to do is say to every 16 to 25 year old, we will guarantee you an apprentice with the right qualification. And in order to do that, we're going to spend three billion subsidising the wage costs for the first year for businesses, pay for, I'm talking about non-levy payers, so smaller businesses, and pay for the training uh, completely. Because I think that would be incredibly powerful offer to say to young people, we will protect you. Um, we're going to uh, offer you a um, an apprentice. And we should ensure that the public sector target for apprentices now in public is about 2%. That should go up to 10%, proper quality apprenticeships, if not more, if not more. I don't understand why it's such a low. I bought it in as 2% when I was a minister. It should be much higher. Um, it's, um, on top of that, we should ensure that all stu- 50% of students sorry, going to university should be doing degree apprenticeships. You earn while you learn, no debt. You're guaranteed to get a job at the end of it. So that will stop people worrying about the loan and being discouraged from taking on higher education. It will help part-time learners at all. Because although um, they always say that disadvantaged students are still going to university with the loans, the fact is part-time learners have gone down massively and many of them tend to be from disadvantaged backgrounds. So if we had made money to universities conditional on each university, including Oxbridge, saying you have to have 50% degree apprenticeships, I think that would make a huge difference. And then potentially you've got a massive offering for millions of people. I'd also change the levy, the apprenticeship levy. So um, to ensure, say that companies could only use their levy or that will use significant parts of it if they hire younger people on proper, not rather than just retrain existing staff. And I think that could be very powerful. And separately, the government should offer a skills credit to businesses, um, a bit like the R&D credit, whereby if businesses do retrain their workers for skills that the country needs, they would get a tax credit off their bill just as they get research and development tax uh, credit. Um, so skills and tax cuts, I think, are two of the key things that I would do if I was uh, uh, the prime minister in terms of getting the economy moving again and making sure that our younger people are not just thrown out of work. And the chancellor is going to have to start finding some money from somewhere to pay for the huge amounts of debt he's built up with furlough and things like that, though, Rob. Um, are you worried that uh, the days are numbered for things like the pensions triple lock and the fuel duty freeze that you've championed? I am. Uh, I think that the triple lock is really important. I think sometimes people make a mistake because they think every pensioner 
is living in Surrey and milking the pension system. But actually, if I think of pensioners locally where I live, uh, many of them uh, don't have a lot of money at all. And the the pension, the triple lot, means that they have some quality of life um, that they wouldn't otherwise have. And they don't live in big houses in Surrey. And when people start having a go about how wealthy pensions are, they just think about these pensioners. So I would be very worried if the triple lock was reversed. Of course, if there's something, as I heard in the last couple of days, that the pension will go up by a huge amount. If they suspended part of it for one year, I'd have less of a problem. But I think the triple lock is a very important thing for people who have um, who struggle because they're towards the you know the end of their day, so to speak. And um, a lot of them don't have a a lot of money and a lot of savings. So I think it's a good thing. In terms of fuel duty, I would, of course, argue that that brings in more money. Um, It it goes to my conservative philosophy about tax revenues. And in fact, a Treasury study in 2014 um, said that it actually had the fuel duty freeze had brought in more, more money and would help in terms of grow GDP. Because, of course, every time you raise fuel duty, you're not just hurting the individual motorist or white van uh, driver, but you're hurting uh, companies who are transporting goods. You increase bus fares because the price of diesel uh, goes up. You're increasing the price of food because of the cost of transportation. So it hits the cost of living in every part of the economy. And people just think of it in terms of motorists, uh, you know, individual motorists, but that's not the case. I, I hope very much that they don't go for cost of living uh, taxes. Um, Rachel, I mean, how how important is it? I mean, the stories have come in for a lot of criticism over the handling, the Im- immediate handling of coronavirus. And we've seen the party's poll ratings fall and Boris Johnson's poll ratings fall. But is the economic fallout more important? And could it cost the Tories at the next election? Um, well, very possibly. Yeah, I think it, when when Boris Johnson was elected, it was kind of um, in a very different time, a completely different time now, and it was only six months ago. You know, I think um, it was very, very easy to say we'll be leveling up, we'll be doing this, that, and the other um, when the economy is all going to be rosy and fine. Um, but now he's he's looking at a very different picture, um, and um, I, I don't know. I don't think anything that's happened so far will necessarily be damaging him at the next election. But I think how the recovery goes will be. Um, will be very difficult for him. Yeah, I, I think um, Rishi Sunak was on the Andrew Marshall on Sunday and he was um, talking about that big OECD report, which kind of outlined that of, of all the developed nations, the, the UK was going to be the hardest hit. And he was kind of really keen to talk up that we'd also have potentially the fastest recovery. But because we're so reliant on services, much of this is going to depend on people's behaviour and you know, just confidence generally. Um, but so it's a very long road, I think, for for Boris Johnson. And um, but in terms of the of how the red red wall voters would would see it, I think that um, perhaps investing in manufacturing, like like really like forward looking manufacturing, would be one way to show that he cares about their communities. But it's worth remembering, don't forget, there was this poll this week showing that Labour was still way behind the Conservatives on the economy. I mean, we shouldn't forget that. that that's the yeah. fundamental context in which Starmer and Johnson are operating in. You know, that was a it, it, it was really, to me, really striking. Starmer was for the first time rated as more competent than the prime minister. But ask the public about. Um, with the economy, would you rather have Johnson and the Tories running the economy or Starmer and Labour running the economy? And the Tories are streets ahead still. 
Uh, well, let's move on because as all this goes on, there is increasing discontent on the Tory backbenches. Senior MPs are concerned about the government's handling of coronavirus, whether it has a grip of the economy and the seemingly endless U-turns. Many are also still upset about the Dominic Cummings lockdown scandal and are concerned that the PM, under the influence of his most senior adviser, is not listening to backbenchers enough. Desmond Swain broke cover to directly challenge Johnson to drop the two-metre social distancing rule for the sake of the economy this week. Let's listen. So long as the kingdom and this house resembles a stunt by 1984's Junior Anti-Sex League, the recovery necessary to sustain his global ambition and indeed the 15 billion of international development aid will evade us. Surely a yard is more than enough. Paul, as we sort of started picking up last week, the Tories aren't a very happy camp at the moment. Yeah, don't forget that the one U-turn that hasn't happened in recent weeks is Dominic Cummings being kicked out of number 10. Uh, And that's fundamental, I think, to perhaps what you've been seeing recently on the other Um, U-terms. Cummings has got this model, which is... Uh, was shown by the departure of Sajid Javid. And what it was all about was number 10, taking control, centralising as much of government as it, as, it, as it could possibly take, beefing up the centre at the expense of individual strong cabinet ministers and strong departments. Now, that's to caricature it, but that's really the guts of what, what Johnson and, and, and Cummings have been driving at. And that could only work, that model, if you've got really competent people in the centre. And what we've seen in recent weeks is that those people simply aren't there for a, for a variety of reasons, a lack of experience in number 10, whether it's on policy, whether it's on comms, whether it's on liaising with the parliamentary party. There just isn't the, the, the experience and, and now there. And that's why you do get U-turns. Now, there's nothing wrong in principle, obviously, with U-turns. And you can say they're a mark of good government if they show governments are listening. I, I think there's, there's definitely something in that. But if you get a reputation for it, then the public are thinking, hold, hold on a tick, you know, who's running this show? I also think your own MPs start to wonder what, you know, what they can, what else they can push through, you know, what else they can um, get their prime minister to agree to. Yeah, Rob, what do you make of that? Well, uh, to, to be fair to them, it is a national pandemic and we're in a crisis and a state of national emergency. So I accept that uh, things go wrong from time to time. I mean, I've used the lockdown because I love Tolkien's I've been rereading um Lord of the Rings and they see Dominic Cummings seems to have taken on the mythical stages of Wormtongue to King Theoden of Rohan um kind of the villain that everybody loves to hate um and and MPs of course are considered by the number 10 policy unit as annoying hobbits in the shire who are legal necessities and uh just to do what we're told to do um <laughs> So uh, it is. It is. It has been difficult. I think that sometimes they don't understand the pressures from constituents, especially. You said red wall earlier. I prefer you said blue wall, um, Rachel. Which okay. it is. Um, <laughs> um, the pressures that constituents uh, like mine in Harlow and uh, blue wall seats, marginal seats across the country, face from constituents who are struggling. I mean, people are having it really tough, even with the brilliant furlough schemes. And for some, I don't understand why there isn't any kind of uh, radar system whereby number 10, there are people in number 10 with enough political nous to know that issues like free school meals, for example, which we talked about earlier, 
are going to be a mega hot potato and to prepare a battle plan and to talk to MPs. And uh, and I think uh, what I think that the obviously there are a lot of vote leave people at the um, heart of number 10 and they fell out with some of the MPs at the time. And I think their their view about MPs is coloured from that time uh, that, as I say, MPs are just annoying hobbits from the Shire who are, um, you know, have to be tolerated um, in essence. But I don't think MPs are like that. Of course, I would say that because I am one. But I think <laughs> if you are most MPs, despite what the public think, because the public think, obviously, we're all drinking pina coladas on the beach somewhere every day. But most MPs I know are very hardworking, care deeply about their constituents and are in touch with the things that are going on. And they really get it because you see it. You speak to people when you're out and about. You see it in your email box. You make a distinction between the trolls and serious people good people writing to you and I think there needs to be a much better it needs to be dramatically transformed a much better operation political operation where at number 10 where they have um, they bring MPs in to discuss these kind of issues have regular contact with MPs for marginal seats I don't mean just drinks with the prime minister which is all very nice at number 10 from time to time I mean serious regular contact programs and uh, making sure they understand that what is going on in in uh, Harlow or Stoke um, is very different to what might be happening in 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 a London. My, my impression was that this sort of thing went on anyway. Did, I mean, did it happen under David Cameron and Theresa May? What kind of structures were in place or could be put in place? David Cameron had um, very, I mean, you mentioned Desmond Swain. He was a pretty good parliamentary private secretary because he could go and talk to anyone whether you were a new BMP at the time I was 2010 or whether you were um someone like Nicholas Soames you know you, you so you need those kind of people who are bru- who are bruisers who understand the party like it's in their blood for 20 years 30 years who can speak to any MP who can relate to any MP who are a people person you need people like that working with the parliamentary party to understand really what is what is going on and not give the impression as, um, that we are just uh, annoying legal necessities um, and uh, just to be do, to do what we're told. So do, do you think the appointment of a lot of newer MPs to PPS roles hasn't helped? I think there's some very good MPs who've been appointed um, to PPS roles. My neighbouring MP I share an office with in Harlow, she's brilliant and uh, she's going to rise far, Julie Marson. Um and she's actually my proxy vote uh, at the moment um, because we had a battle for that. She's a great MP. So I think there are some great people. I wouldn't knock them. And you need them for the new MPs because obviously new MPs relate to new MPs. But I just think they need a one or two bruisers, sort of Desmond Swain, John Hazy type characters who really know the Parliamentary Party. You can go to the Prime Minister and say, look, sort this out. I think that's part of the problem, isn't it? Isn't the problem, Rob, that actually when it comes to the PM's PPS, Cameron was guilty of basically trying to get somebody new and young to be their PPS, whereas for years it was someone who was a veteran who had everything you just talked about. So you've got people like Sam Gima, I remember when he was made PPS, and he had virtually no connection with the Parliamentary Party. Um, You know, who Trudy Harrison was appointed, I think, for under Boris Johnson at one point. Trudy is still there, and Trudy, to be fair to her, is pretty good. Yeah, but I'm I'm sure she is good, but she hasn't been around long enough to deal with that whole range of MPs, as you say. Yeah, this is why I think on top of that, I wouldn't, I, 
I genuinely think I wish all MPs were like Judy Harrison. I think we would be all Conservative MPs. I think we'd be in a much better place because she's a salt of the earth, hardworking MP, and she also is passionate about friendships and skills. And has a good influence on the Prime Minister. But I just think they need a kind of John Hazy, as I say, Desmond Swain type character. Uh, to be a, a mixture of bruiser, uh, but serious individual who can speak to any MP, who can be that ra- uh, radar or li- lighthouse for MPs, basically. That's what the Prime Minister needs. He needs a lighthouse to um, uh, somebody who is acting as a lighthouse to stop the ships hitting the rocks. And he hasn't got a lighthouse at the moment. Yeah, uh, Rachel, another tricky uh, occasion possibly coming up for the Prime Minister after, well, he, he... He's chosen this week to announce plans to merge the Department for International Development and the Foreign Office. Um, and there's a suggestion that that might lead to some kind of reshuffle or at least a mini reshuffle. Yeah. Tricky one, this one, with things as, as they are. Yeah, well, I think the Prime Minister said it himself when he was at the Liaison Committee. Um, I think Caroline Knox asked him a, a question about whether or not he should have a few more women at the top table because she hadn't heard them talk whatsoever about childcare and there'd been I think Pretty Patel's only held the the press conference once or twice um, and he kind of said that he was it was something he had given a lot of thought and he was um, thinking about a, a reshuffle. Um, I think you've got all of the Black Lives Matter um, movement happening in the background um, and we're going to need to talk a lot more about childcare and about um, these issues so I think there's a lot to juggle around. I think he's also been um criticised an awful lot for having a a lot of kind of yes men or yes characters at his top table as well whereas he's needing a lot of experience because you've got people like uh, Jeremy Hunt who leads the health select committee and um, you've got Greg Clark who's leading the the business committee and they're kind of have got a lot of and and you know he needs more people like Rob and like Greg in his in his cabinet um, sharing their experience. I would have I would have thought. Well, I'm actually lucky because if I hadn't got my uh, select committee role, I wouldn't have never been able to campaign on school vouchers, for example, free school meals, and so it's an amazing role. I'm very lucky to be doing it because you can you can't make policy, but you can influence it and uh, make a difference, and also say what you want, which is quite nice as well. Yeah, I do program. If I was a minister, Paul, and you asked me, I'd have to get us wait six weeks for Downing Street to approve it. <laughs> well, on that note, let's move on to the quiz. Uh, and in honour of Boris Johnson's 900 grand paint job for his plane, this week's is all about world leaders and aircraft. Oh, God. Uh, so just shout out the answer if you know it. Um, <laughs> I think I might just give up now. <laughs> Tony Blair as Prime Minister caused controversy once because he received free upgrades from British Airways as he travelled on a controversial holiday to Miami. While there, he stayed in a mansion. But who was the mansion owned by? Was it one of the gifts? I know it was called Blair Force One. I know that bit. I remember that. Um, whose mansion was it? Was I think it, it was one of the Gibbs. One of the yeah. Gibbs. Paul, I'll give you that. It's Robin Gibbs. Oh, yeah. I didn't know. I didn't know that one. I know it's called Blair Force One, so I hope you give me half a point for that. <laughs> go yeah, go, go on then. Fine. <laughs> um, question number two: David Cameron ordered the refitting of the RAF Voyager jet that has become famous again this week. Um, but how much did that refit cost? Ten million. 
Yes, well done, Paul. Wow. I remember, wow. It. I remember it very vividly. <laughs> uh, the final question is a bit of a curveball. So, uh, who played President James Marshall in the 1997 political action thriller Air Force One? Oh, God. Was it Harrison Ford? Yes, well done, yeah. Rachel. Well done, oh, well done. Rachel. Congratulations. We have more film questions that I forget. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, that's all we have time for this week. Thank you to my guests for joining me, and make sure you subscribe to Commons People on all the usual channels so that you can catch us every Thursday. And be sure to get your daily dose of the latest politics news by signing up to the Warzone newsletter at bit.ly forward slash the hyphen war hyphen zone, or follow the link in the episode notes. We'll just leave you with Dominic Raab expressing his views on the Black Lives Matter protests. Just as after watching the football last night, um, would you take a knee if you were asked to? Do you know what? I, I, I understand um, this sense of frustration and restlessness which is driving the Black Lives Matters movement. I've got to say on this taking the knee thing, which I don't know, maybe it's got a broader history, but it seems to be taken from the Game of Thrones, it feels to me like a symbol of subjugation and subordination rather than one of liberation and emancipation. 